0: Welcome to episode number 298 of Destination Linux. Destination Linux is a video podcast show from the Tux Digital Network. If you're new to the show, this is a discussion podcast perfect for all experience levels. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of Sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Ryan. I'm Jill. And I'm Michael. On this week's episode of Destination Linux, we have an exclusive interview with WooCash from Pine64 about a brand new board that they're releasing. You don't want to miss this discussion, especially if you're in that camp where the Raspberry Pi has been elusive for you because it's all out of stock. We got some really cool things from Pine64 that'll make that go away. Then we'll be discussing the drama of Fedora Codex. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All of this coming up right now on Destination Linux. So this week's feedback comes from Reddit, but if you want to send in your own feedback, go to tuxdigital.com slash contact to get in touch or join the Tux Digital community forum by going to tuxdigital.com and clicking on the forum link at the top of the page. This post caught my attention on Reddit because it's one of those things I believe at some point in all of our episodes we may have talked about briefly, but I wanted to bring it back up because it's been many, many years and... I was on the fence about this one, so I wanted to get Michael and Jill's opinion on this. The person wrote, it's 2022. Why don't GUI file managers have the ability to prompt for a password when a user attempts to perform a file operation that requires root rather than just saying, laugh out loud, nope. I don't know any file manager that actually says laugh out loud, nope, but I think I want to put that feature (laughs) request in. I want that that to be be there now. Yes, that would be really funny. Now, I know there are plugins for Nautilus and other file managers have like open as root options, but it's a mixed bag, right? Some have this feature, some have a portion of the feature, some don't have it at all. However, it's not consistent, which is something I think we need to talk about. And two, why not give this ability for people to do this? Why are we locking it down? You can do it in Windows, you can do it in macOS, why not in Linux consistently in the file manager? Thoughts?
1: I think it's 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 more security reasons. Although you know there there should sometimes be a, a prompt there saying to either let you know to uh, log in with uh, super user privileges or just a prompt to put your password in. I think that is actually a good idea. And yeah. honestly, I was just thinking it was. Because of the lineage of Linux, you know, back in the day we used to have uh, a separate root and a separate user install, like under Debian, and back in the day, so you would just take care of that then. <laughs>
2: back then, there was a thing, but in between, from now and you know, yeah. fifteen years ago, there things was a changed. period where there were <laughs> options to do these these kinds of things, where it would just activate and ask you to do this stuff, and then yeah. some file managers decided to remove these features, and True. it is understandably annoying, but a lot of the times uh, when I've talked to a couple of the developers, they do say that security is the basis for uh, changing that. And I do think that that is a reasonable basis for such a decision, but it has been a long time since those things have changed. And it kind of makes me wonder, is there no possible way that this could be created in some way to be safer for people who are not familiar with what this is doing versus people who actually want to do it like why does it stop people who are experienced like us who want to make these changes and i think that that is a totally reasonable question to ask you know going forward because in my opinion the way that windows does it with the you know, click okay and move on. Like just, it's a very simple question whether to do it or not. And there is really no clear way to warn people not to do it because people just ignore those kinds of questions and you just skip it. You know, it's like how people are ignoring the ramifications of what those pop-up messages are even saying. And they they will accidentally do something they shouldn't have done. But I think that the password is a good uh, process to say, this is significant enough that you will have to put your password in and that should be good enough warning in my opinion because once that is asking you a password it should tell you that this is a security related feature so if you don't know what this is going to do don't do it so i think that the i think it's overly cautious at this point mm.
0: yeah i think if they had an option maybe for standard users we we've seen on linus tech tips video when he was playing with pop OS and it gave a big warning not to do something and they did it anyways and it broke the system. I can see how people are used to ignoring these type of things and giving mm-hmm. people root access by default to some of these things would be a really bad idea. But there are a lot of people who do have the experience to be messing with this. It is a little archaic at times um, to try to navigate in other ways through the terminal and stuff. So why not have an option, a setting that enables this that's off by default that people could enable and then do the password thing like you're talking about, Michael, um, would be a good option. But I think it definitely needs to be something consistent. I'm looking at the live chat right now. Some people are saying it's security. Uh, Some people are mentioning that Windows doesn't always allow you to do certain things with just the OK button. Uh, Sometimes Mm -hmm. you have to right click on the program and tell it that you want to run as administrator or those type of things. So. They obviously have the same issues where they're trying to figure out that balance of, mm-hmm. hey, you're about to enter something where you could really break something, but doing it in such a way that it doesn't make it that so difficult to go and make a right. change, especially for something that's maybe simple. Right.
1: Yeah, and you know, like the synaptic package manager um, does prompt you. You know, if you run it not as root, it says uh, you need to be in root to uh, install applications. That that's nice that it, it's been doing that for years. <laughs> Some
2: applications do it in general. And also, like for example, Kate, the text editor from KDE, is another example because when you save a file for a place that you don't have permissions as your regular user, it will ask you to put in your password to get permission, and then it will save the file. So you can do it inside of Kate, and you can open files with Kate for the same kind of purpose of editing directly. So there are applications that can do it. And also, some file managers can do certain levels of it. Like Dolphin has the ability to to some degree do this, such as asking for permissions when you're trying to run an executable, but not always like drag and drop. So if you want to move files from one folder to another and then the, the target folder doesn't have permissions, it will mm-hmm. just give you like a pop-up that says you don't have access and then that's all your options. It's either okay or cancel, which both effectively do the same thing. So like, in those situations, I understand how that can be frustrating because the dialog pop-up just gives you no option whatsoever. Personally, when I... Want to move something? I just use the terminal, and I don't think Mm -hmm. that's the best option in general because Mm -hmm. it's. I'm doing that as a compensation workaround, and it's not my first choice. I did first try to do it with Dolphin until I realized I couldn't do it, and so I did a workaround with the terminal. And there are there are workarounds for these file managers to install like plugins or modifications of some, some kind of module that gives you the option to do open as root or move in those kinds of ways. But it's not exactly recommended by the developers who make the file managers because they're third party and all that sort of stuff. So I don't know. It's something I think should be looked at by the developers who make the file manager. And hopefully, you know, they come up with a system that isn't so, like I said, overly cautious.
1: There you go. Yeah.
2: This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Get started by going to do.co slash tux2022. DigitalOcean is an awesome service. You don't actually have to worry about being overly cautious there because you can throw up as many droplets as you want and mess around. And if something goes bad, no big deal. You just make a new droplet or you can create a snapshot to easily go back and forth. You never have to worry about, oh, I did it wrong. You can get back within like 10 to 15 seconds. Just fantastic. Plus, cloud computing can be let's say complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure doesn't have to be because DigitalOcean can get you set up and running on their awesome cloud platform quickly and easily. And at DigitalOcean you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most building world-changing apps that grow your business. And DigitalOcean also offers predictable pricing, robust product documentation, and services that developers love. Like I mentioned, you can easily, quickly set up snapshots to be able to revert anything you do on your droplet. Such a great feature, as well as the one-click droplets that you can do in the DigitalOcean marketplace. Plus, at DigitalOcean, you can get support at every stage of growth, whether you have a team of one person or a team of 1,000 people. With DigitalOcean, you can get growing with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. And as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the Tux digital community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 60 day free credit when you sign up at do.co slash Tux 2022. That's do.co slash Tux 2022. So again, go get started with that awesome free credit you can get for $100 for 60 days on DigitalOcean's fantastic cloud platform by going to do.co slash Tux 2022. We would like to
0: welcome back to the show, Wukash from Pine64 to discuss some very exciting things that they have in the works for us. Wukash, welcome back to Destination Linux.
3: Thank you for having me again. It has been a year, a year and a bit since we last seen each other. It's too yeah. long. The too is definitely too long. Too long. <laughs> too long, too long well, I guess.
0: We're always excited when there's a new product coming from Pine64, and there's been one that's kind of hit the media. There were leaks, like the big, you know, Apple and everybody has these secret inside leaks. Pine64 had a leak. We kind of reached out to you and we're like, hey, we want you to come on the show and tell us about this leak that's happened, this important thing. Of course, it's not a leak anymore. The official blog blog post came out yesterday on it, but Ox 64 with Risk Five, tell us about this new device.
3: Yeah. So the AUX64 is both a microcontroller as well as a Linux capable single board computer. Uh, so it's kind of, it's, it's able to run both bare metal, uh, RTOS system as well as full blown Linux on, it has three cores and we kind of, we're going to have two different SKUs available. To play with, depending on what they're more interested in, whether they're more interested in the Linux side of things or in uh, in the bare metal stuff. So the the Linux comes with, or the Linux SKU comes with both 128 megabytes of onboard flash, as well as a SD card for expansion, whatever you you may need that for. Right. And um, the and it comes in at eight uh, U.S. dollars. So uh, wait, was that eighty? In-
1: $8,
0: just $8. eight US dollars. Wow. Amazing. That's yeah. Incredible.
3: So I suppose the idea is that, you know, it can serve multiple purposes to many different people um, and kind of service a lot of different fields within uh, the community and the industry. I, I think uh, it's very interesting because you never know what's going to blow up and you know what's going to be picked up by the media. And there's certainly a need for this sort of device. And my guess is that uh, the selling factor here is that you, you, if you are interested in Risk Five and just want to get hands on and uh, try development and see how the architecture is this is like a very low entry point where you can just pick one up and and have fun with it. If, even if you don't intend it for any particular projects.
0: At $8 for a risk five, it's a very low entry Mm -hmm. point and it gets a lot of people the ability financially to be able Mm -hmm. to start exploring in Mm -hmm. risk five more, which is very exciting to me. I love it.
1: Yeah. And you guys are no stranger to risk five, having it, having a chip in the pine soul for instance, uh, that's really that was a good place to start. Really was. <laughs>
3: it was, yeah. Uh, although that was strictly a microcontroller, so we were yeah. looking like um, at the at the end of last year, beginning of this year, I've uh, I've communicated to people that we will be exploring Risk Five uh, this year and um, for years to come, for that matter. And we knew that we want to have a you know full blown uh risk 5 single board computer something to be on par with uh with core 64 which is our current arm based uh, single board computer and uh 2 months ago we uh, we announced that we're doing the star 64 which is a very close proxy to to the core 64 but running um risk 5 but there's uh, you know risk 5 on or linux and uh, on on risk 5 has still a long way to go um and lowering the entry point is also something we wanted to do i mean not every some people pick up uh single board computers to do all sorts of hobby based stuff on them but there's also the whole industry around these things and they want a really sort of mature operating system that is kind of fleshed out and risk five has a way to go in this respect so uh you know we knew that we also want to make an entry point device for, for, for people just to get hold on um, Risk Five and start playing with it. Love it.
1: Nice. So, Wukash, you, you touched on this a little bit already. So what are the primary use cases you foresee this board being used for?
3: Yeah, um, I, I think that, again, because it can do both the bare metal stuff and uh, Linux, I, yeah. I think that the kind of the spectrum of possibilities is quite wide. I should also mention that uh, the board has uh, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi as well as mm-hmm. uh, a. You could you could break out the CSI interface, so that's for for cameras. So I have uh, my friends, my best friends. They have a vineyard and a, a and a winery, and they've been looking for uh, a cheap system to monitor particular uh, what do they call vines, or you know throughout throughout the fields. And uh, the idea of having multiple Ox sixty fours with a camera attachment, you know, and you know, if the camera attachment is say five dollars, um, then you have a uh, something that is capable of taking a picture every say hour or two hours or even once a day, right, and sending it back uh, via Wi Fi uh to to a server you know this is a fantastic application but i i mean you know sky's the limit i I suppose that a lot of people would want to use it for robotics for i was thinking uh Mm -hmm. uh, you know sensors uh all sorts of things uh, of that nature but again i think that the initial wave of people who will be picking one up will be picking one up just to check out the risk five architecture on on the cheap
1: obviously and i wanted to mention uh I understand now the the why you have the motion jPEG encoder in there now mm-hmm. because that's that's really good for cameras embedded uh, video capture systems uh, mm-hmm. use motion jPEG and even our webcams and cameras so that was a really good decision <laughs> to put that in coding
3: <laughs> yeah we I mean we've t- we've we've talked with uh, Buffalo, which are the people behind the BL-808 um, SOC, uh, quite a bit uh, about what we, you know, they're quite forthcoming and easy to work with. So we've had a very good relationship with them due to to the Pine which you you mentioned, Joe, right? Which obviously the Pine has become a, uh, you know, quite quite a significant uh, product for Pine64. It's officially... Uh, listed as Amazon's choice for uh, soldering. Nice. In- oh. Yay. <laughs> I love hearing that. In United love- States. Uh, so, you know, that that says a thing or two about how popular the device has become, which also opened up the, you know, the the, the path to work with Buffalo and kind of find some sort of ideas which we could ping-pong uh, back and forth and figure out, you know, uh, if they would be willing to incorporate some of the things we were uh, we would like to see in an SFC.
2: What percentage do you think that the pine the pine sill has that is attracting users and customers for like for the getting the Amazon choice? What percentage do you think is the attraction from the quality of the device and the name Pine Sill?
3: I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> That's a good question. I think so we've recently released a uh, you know, I don't want to call it a, a new so I want to say a revised version of the original. Uh, I think when the original came out, it uh, what it did was that it offered more features for a for half the price of what was available at you know at the time uh, on the market. Um, if anything, I would imagine that initially what the pencil did was it introduced people to to other devices that we make because uh, there's obviously a lot of people who do not necessarily care about open source or whatever, they're just, you know, using, they do soldering for whatever, for jobs or, you know, for fun. electricians, what happened. Yeah, yeah for fun. Uh, and there's definitely a group of people who came in, you know, I could see because I monitored the chats uh, now and then, and there's definitely a group of people who came in and they said, oh, so right. So you also make, you know, single board computers and smartphones and what have you. So initially, definitely, it was a question of price to performance. Now... I, I don't know if the branding uh, uh, carries some, some weight. Um, possibly, possibly pretend that it does, even if it's mm-hmm. not true. I'd like well, to think.
0: in a, In a world where we're seeing a lot of drama occurring between hardware manufacturers and open source and open source projects and things, Find64 has been capable of remaining out of that drama and just building really good partnerships. And one of the things I want to highlight with that is you mentioned the boards are already shipped to Linux developers out there ahead of time. And doing things like that, to me, is one of the reasons why we love Pine64 so Absolutely, much. Like that, mm-hmm. to me, just shows, you know, a lot of Pine64's philosophy, tell me if I get it wrong, but is more of, hey, we get this hardware for you. We get it out there. You all build the software. The community builds the software around it and does whatever they want, whether it's creating like with this new board, light, sensors, robotics, operating systems they put on it. We're giving you the platform, go play uh, with it. But you're also making sure that you're giving the developers chance to actually start integrating some of these pieces so people have a starting point. And that to me is just one of the amazing things about Pine.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, our philosophy has been now for quite some time that we we start by creating a a, a test run of uh, single board computers. Usually, it starts with single board computers, and then we we offer them to to developers who we have an established relationship with, and they get to offer feedback to us um, on the on the on the device and tell us you know uh, if they think that there should be any improvements to it, uh, if if they like to see anything changed, uh, or if they don't like it at all for that matter. Right, we've had. A few of these things happen as well throughout the years. Uh, at which point we sometimes scrap the project. So once we once we get the feedback, the single board computer comes out, and once uh, at least rudimentary uh, support for it is, is in place, you know people can just pick, pick it up. We usually also make sure to notify prospectus buyers about the status of of a device. So some of our devices which had a little bit more time the rock Pro 64 and a64 and, and so forth and so on they're really really well supported at this point but some of the newer devices they uh, they still have uh, you know some way to go and we usually make sure to to communicate clearly to 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 customers that if you're picking this up it's mostly for development right so and for for sure we'll be doing the same thing with the aux 64 right if you're picking one up you you have to Uh, you know, it won't be plug and play initially for the first couple of months, that's for sure.
2: Yeah, I think it's great that you're upfront about that. And that's one of the things that I was a big fan of Pine64 in the beginning when you announced many different products. And there's a lot of cool stuff that's, you know, in the store for Pine64. But one of the products that we're really looking forward to is the Pine Note. Are there any Uh updates you can give us on this exciting product?
3: Yeah, so um, there are a few. So, uh, the big challenge with the pine note isn't really the SoC. The SoC has been, has done really well in the past uh, year, which is probably when, about the time we last spoke about this. Um, and the pine note in particular. And, uh, the SoC is now, I want to say fully mainlined. Uh, the, the big problem with the pine note is getting the, um, the e-paper display to to, to, to function uh, perfectly uh, with open drivers and all that, obviously, uh, that being one of the criteria. So I actually, I don't know if I have mine here on hand, but I run um, Arch on, on mine, and I use it as a PDF reader. And uh, two or uh, three months ago, a group of developers managed to get uh, the pen input working and working without a significant uh, lag, which is really important and something which is uh, quite uh, difficult. Obviously this requires uh, backwards engineering, a lot of the waveform uh, code Mm -hmm. and figuring out how to, you know, how to make it all work. Yeah. Uh, The reason why PineNote isn't broadly available to everyone is not because of the SOC, and not because uh, you know there's any major outstanding functionality. It's just that the core experience with the with the e-paper isn't particularly good, and it will take time for for the e-paper to get pro- for the driver for the e-paper to get properly implemented.
0: Let me add another reason I love Pine sixty four: the, the honesty that you guys yes. have mm-hmm. with things like this, and not selling something out there that. You know, even though your philosophy is, "Hey, we'll put it out in our community, you guys build something," but obviously, you want it to be at a certain standard, and just the honesty that you guys always demonstrate with this stuff is just something I want to applaud because you don't see it very often. Obviously, it's very expensive for you all to have this stock on hand and not be shipping it and making any money off of it, uh, but I think you're doing the right thing, holding it back until it's got you know at least the foundation ready to go for people to start playing and hacking around with. This is one that I particularly, as you remember when we had you on for the big reveal, like I want one of these so bad. You, yeah. have, you have no idea how annoying it is to constantly be keeping up with notebooks or whatever 50 other things I decide might be a good way to organize my notes that I never keep up with. And so there's 50 of them. So I think this will be the answer that I need. And so I'm excited this to come as soon as possible but i keep checking back and seeing now the stock thing and now we know why
3: so let me just say that the progress has been really really quite fast in in the past uh, six months so you know uh, there is a good chance that granted we find the right partner for the operating system and uh, somebody who would be able to put together uh, or at least theme their distribution uh, the the user interface, if, in a way which would be suitable for a, a grayscale uh, device, then you know starting early next year, you could uh, you, you you could be looking at some announcements in, in this area.
0: Nice, I'm excited about that. So, I want to talk about something that we've had on our Hardware Addict show that's impacted Wendy directly as she's trying to do robotics, and it's impacted people across the industry. My patrons people listen to this show, talk about this. The Raspberry Pi has been out of stock for a long time and those that do exist are being scalped and the prices are through the roof. Uh, it's upsetting educational institutions. It's upsetting science institutions, businesses trying to use this. What is the best alternative? Raspberry Pi is not the only device out there, obviously, that can do these type of things. What's the best alternative that Pine has for the Raspberry Pi 4?
3: since the Raspberry Pi shortages kind of started we've seen a significant uptake of wide variety of our boards and uh, compute modules um, especially for industry partners which is quite interesting we're, we're seeing a lot of people going back to the quite now now quite old but really well supported rock 64 Um These boards find their way into a lot of different uh, products, which just need to work. And uh, industry partners usually replace, uh, you know, um, some older versions of Raspberry Pis with with these. And then for those who require much more power, we've seen a huge uptake in the Rock Pro 64 because that's a really well supported uh, device at this point. Uh, But When it comes to modules, uh, you know, the SoulPine has always been, uh, very popular, especially in the Asian market. Um, so far, so much so that we were never able to really uh, satisfy the demand, especially during pandemic and and stuff. But now based on the new single board computer, the, uh, Quartz 64, which is, uh, you know, which is meant to be a direct competitor to the Raspberry Pi, we, we recently released. Uh, the Soul Quartz, uh, which is a uh, Raspberry Pi compute module for sort of a form factor, which has also have seen a significant uptake in, in recent months.
0: So let's talk about that for a second. On the quartz sixty four, does this module have the Wi Fi built into it? It does. Okay. And so when people are doing projects, like whether they're doing something for STEM projects, for education, everything, Mm -hmm. and it requires a Raspberry Pi, Mm -hmm. how capable of switching in and out, like the instructions, you know, there's lots of guides and instructions because Raspberry Mm -hmm. Pi was so popular. How easy is it for me to take those same instructions and just do it on a Quartz 64 versus a Raspberry Pi? Is there going to be major differences or issues with hat modules or other things that I need to contend with? Or what are your? What's the differences there between them?
3: So with the Quartz sixty four, I'd say that it's probably not quite there yet when it comes to education. There's there's some boards which are you know going back to those boards which have been on the market for maybe a year or two would be would be probably a safer safer bet because those are really well supported and usually well supported by multiple uh, distributions. Some people in the industry that are picking up a lot of these. Cores, uh, SoCores uh, modules, but they usually have very large internal development uh, teams that ca- can make it you, do the things they need it t- to do. Now that there is a compute module for shortage, yeah, we've s- recently seen uh, support from major um, distributions for for the RK three five six six, which is the basis for the SoCores and, and the quartz sixty four. And I think that for general enthusiasts and people who just want to toy with it, I think we're really, really, really close, but not quite there yet. Maybe maybe literally, you know, three or four months and uh, that single board computer is going to be fully fledged uh, for lack of a better word. I've seen a review or two on it and I know some people say, oh, the desktop is slow. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, if you only fired it up in Wayland, you know, it would be... Uh, everything will be fine but it's these little things yes right it's these little things that still need to be uh kind of polished up and 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 finished and uh, distributions need to take a closer look at at some of these things and it it will happen it just needs uh, another few months uh, until that that's there right
0: so the rock pro 64 a little bit more Mm -hmm. expensive of a board a lot more power Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. that board there also seems to have all the features that most of the Raspberry Pi projects for hobbyists would be looking for more than most of the features as additional features. The one thing it doesn't have, and I wanted to see if you guys are working on this, is the Wi-Fi chip built in. Is that is there a plan to have a Rock Pro 64B with a Wi-Fi module built on at some point? And if not, can you uh, name it after me when you guys do
3: drop it? <laughs> well, um... So, we offer a, a module for yeah. it, which, which, uh, you know, which just sits on top of the SDIO pins, uh, and kind of works natively w- with it. Uh, we have started including, uh, Wi Fi and uh, Bluetooth chips with uh, all our newest uh, single board computers. We, we do recognize that. Especially in the hobby space, this is something that people really, really want. So if you look at be it the Cord 64 or Star 64 has Wi-Fi 6 and, uh, you know, Bluetooth uh, 5.2 module on board. So we are quite aware of this. With respect to you know whether will will there be revisions of the uh, Rock Pro sixty four at this point, I doubt it. It's quite a it's 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 its own thing and has been for for two years now. I think going back and re- revising it at this point is probably you know it's probably not necessary. But it's interesting that you mentioned the Rock Pro sixty four and when it comes to um, hobby. Great stuff. So not industry stuff, but you know, everything from game emulation to things which I don't understand about Bitcoin mining and stuff like that. Right. There has been a huge switch of people going from the Raspberry Pi for. To the Rock Pro 64, so that has seen a massive uptake in the in the hobby space, a huge uptake. And there's a lot of projects which I can't pronounce and I don't even know what they do that have published, uh, you know, uh, guides on how to uh, how to have whatever it is that you want working or what you had working on the Raspberry Pi you know, to now work on the Rock Pro 64. I was literally sent another um, link to it, just maybe. 20 minutes before we started the show.
0: Yeah, it's a very, very powerful device. has a lot of amazing features in there, including the 4K digital video out and stuff, so people can use mm-hmm. this for all kinds. And you have the 40-pin GPIO in there mm-hmm. that people can utilize, which is very popular add-in module for things Raspberry Pi and other. You've got expansion buses in there. You've got the ability to hook up cameras, pretty much everything there. So for hobbyists, I definitely recommend people go out and check out the Rock Pro 64 that wi-fi module on the on the boards i think is a good move for all of your future iterations because it's i think it's one of those things where people want that all in one and that's that's the really only difference raspberry pi has is their rock is in their chip is that they have the wi-fi module uh, kind of built in but you can obviously add in the wi-fi module for the rock pro 64.
3: yeah i'll i'll just mention that for a long time the differences you know the difference between Pine64 and uh, Raspberry Pi and what they're doing is that for Raspberry Pi Foundation, the Raspberry Pi is their end product. And it's a phenomenal product at that, I must say, right? And I think most people would would agree that uh, that what they do and their target for the target audience, I mean, they do really, really well. But to us, single board computers are their self, that they are their own thing you know but they're also usually a basis for us to create a device atop of it and use it as a development platform for a device further on in the future so um our mentality around single board computers has always been slightly different than uh, than some of the other uh, manufacturers right so now that you see these new uh, single board computers uh, from pine 64 so that would be the quartz pro 64 the quartz 64 the star 64 and so forth and so on they each of them has a potential to later develop into the next you know laptop or phone or whatever uh, whatever else right
1: yeah well cash and that's what i was gonna ask you was you know what are the exciting things you guys are working on uh on at Pine sixty four, such as maybe a uh, Risk five powered Pinebook Pro. <laughs>
3: that's, that's, that's not a bad guess. Yeah. Um, nice, Jill. I, uh, It's Yeah. Not not a bad guess at all. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it seems like a compelling uh, device. I,
0: I I think
1: nice. I,
3: so.
0: Yeah, that is a great way of answering that. J- yeah. <laughs> Jill, you got him on the ropes. That was brilliant. I did.
1: I've I been love wanting it. a risk five powered see. laptop and having it from Pine 64 would just be the best. <laughs>
0: well, what's interesting is we're getting donations to us, thanking us for this interview, Wukash, you being on here in our chat because people are so excited about risk five content. And that's, that's really awesome, interesting right? to me that so many people are really wanting to get into this in a big way. And and I believe Pine64 is the company that's going to make it happen where we will get our hands on this. I mean, the $8 chip itself, like you said, this lowers the entire barrier for everyone to be able to get in there and start playing with this right. and getting their feet wet with it. And at eight bucks, I mean, that's, that's so affordable. It's insane. That's why I had to ask you twice with everything going up in price, you sure it wasn't eighty? It's eight. You yeah, sure it's eight dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome.
3: There's obviously a lot of potential both in uh, Risk Five and uh, in Arm. We just to be clear, just because we're kind of focusing on uh, Risk Five this year doesn't mean that we're dropping the Arm architecture or anything like that. Of just course. to be kind yep. of clear, that uh, both can coexist happily. Uh, in, in parallel, in my opinion, I, I, I see you know uh, I see a lot of people being super excited about Risk Five. There's uh, a lot of people who I know from the industry, you know, really top notch people doing incredible things. Many of them super excited about Risk Five, uh, and then uh, also highly aware that Risk Five has some way uh, to go. Recently, I spoke to somebody who is a top authority on uh, on the subject of benchmarking, and um, this person benchmarked the Star sixty four, and uh, the Star sixty four uh, in generic benchmarks tends to fall currently quite uh, to, to look quite unfavorably compared to the Quart sixty four, even though on paper they seem very very uh, similar. And I asked him why he thought that was the case, and he said it's just a question of maturity of the platform. So, Risk Five has, uh, you know, a, a good way to go uh, before, especially in our little corner Linux, of, you know, of of this space, that that it becomes a, uh, a properly fleshed out architecture.
1: Yeah, and you know, having an open risk art architecture has been a dream of mine. Since the 90s, I have a Deck Alpha. I have Sun Spark systems, and just having a, a new version of RISC that's open, available in our laptops and, and SoCs is just very exciting.
3: <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> One of the other things which we're sort of uh, working on and will be introducing very soon um, are the Bluetooth uh, earbuds, the Pine Buds. Oh, nice. And uh, Pine
0: Buds, nice. <laughs>
3: I'm excited and, for that. You know, well, what's so cool about them is that um, these are called ear funds And uh-huh. they, they are a relatively inexpensive brand of uh, in-ear uh, IEMs. And somebody from this community spent time to create a uh, frequency analysis profile for your ears in particular. And then you can, and effectively to me, these sound better than very, very, very expensive brand name IEMs. Wow. Because they're quite specifically tuned to my hearing and my ear canal and stuff. And we made it so that it's going to be really easy to do the same with, with the pine buds. It's basically just a breakout via UART, That's via awesome. uh, USB. So you'll be able to flash your own equalizer. The question is, I've actually, I'll, I'll be straight up. I've I've talked to the person. He's quite well known with you within the audiophile kind of community, and I've I've spoken to him about it because he did an incredible job on these. Like they're so so good. The reason why I have them is because you know because of him. It's like a, yeah. you know really thumpy It makes it good. Yeah. It's the hack that makes them good. So I spoke to That's him awesome. and I really do hope that, uh, you know, he or somebody like him would be keen on picking up the pine buds and, uh, you know, taking, tuning them and creating a, uh, a tuning uh, piece of software for, for individuals would be, would be amazing. Yeah, Very that cool.
2: sounds fantastic. The fact that there's even someone who can do that is crazy because I, I always looked at the hardware and those sorts of things as being the limiting factor. That's fantastic. With the
0: shape of everybody's ear canal being different and the mm-hmm. sounds people can hear in ranges being able to do those adjustments are very, very important. And you see a lot of companies are spending their time on that software side to, to get that mm-hmm. right. Not the hardware side because the hardware is limited by the size, honestly, that you're trying mm-hmm. to, what you're trying to pack in there. It's not like your home speakers where you can just keep putting bigger magnets inside of it. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you got these little tiny earbuds you're trying to stick in there. There's not mm-hmm. much right now that you're going to be able to fix outside of the software side.
3: Very interesting prospect, and one of the reasons why we wanted to make the pine buds because this is a hack. With with pine buds, it's going to be just you know as simple as plugging in and, and, and uh, you know connecting it to your PC and getting the SDK, and then you can play with it. Or if you know if you don't know how to do it, then hopefully there will be a community around these things. They will just make it very easy for end users to uh, to upload whatever equalizer and those frequency things are needed for, for you and your hearing in particular.
2: That would be amazing. When are
3: the uh,
0: Pine Buds coming?
2: Yeah, when can we put it in our cart?
3: (laughs) They they are close. They are very, very close. Um, I don't know, but maybe next month, maybe December.
0: Well, we want to thank you and the entire Pine64 team. I mean, I know we're not supposed to be like fanboys and fangirls of guests that we have on, but I'm just straight up tell you I'm a fanboy of Pine64. (laughs) Um, But thank you for bringing the innovations... Uh, to the open source world that you guys are doing and and making them so affordable for people. I think that's one of the big things that's amazing is Uh when we talk to you, we're not telling people, hey, go get $1,200 and you may be able to play with this cool thing we're talking about. It's always very affordable. And additionally, I want to thank you for being a great member of the community. Uh, For those who don't know Pine64, not only, of course, sending their boards to developers and things in the Linux world, but also sponsoring a lot of open source conferences and things recently, the KDE Academy, for instance, and just being a amazing member of the community. So thank you so much uh, for all the work you do there in Pine sixty four. We appreciate it.
3: Thanks, guys.
1: Oh, love Pine sixty
0: four. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank laughs> that should be a t shirt. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you pick up the Rock Pro sixty four or the Court sixty four, one of the first things once you get your OS on it, you're going to do is install a password manager, and that password manager has gotta be Bitwarden. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden, and you could get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash tux, that's slash T-U-X. A password manager software allows you to have peace of mind knowing your online accounts are secure. Bitwarden provides you the tools to store all your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords and your usernames as well, and automatically fill those in on forms. One of the best parts is you can have it across all your devices, whether on your web browser, mobile apps, desktop applications, even the command line, you can have Bitwarden in. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data. And this is the key part with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your device. So you know, you're the only person with access to your data. Again, go to bitwarden.com slash T-U-X to get started. But For $10 a year, you can get some premium features here, and you're going to want to support this amazing project. You get a gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, and that's my preferred way. I use YubiKey with everything there. Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator, TOTP, Priority Customer Support, and so much more. And that's less than a dollar per month. Everything's going up in price. Bitwarden's price has stayed the same. Jump on it now. Before that could change, Bitwarden.com slash T U X to get started. And thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux.
2: Over the last couple of weeks, there has been a lot of buzz about a decision made in Fedora Linux. Fedora has decided to remove certain codecs from the default setup of this distro. This also prompted uh, OpenSUSE to remove them as well. Now, these codecs we're talking about are the H.264 and the H.265, as well as the VC1 acceleration codecs. Now, the reason why this is being removed is for patent and legal reasons. Well, legal reasons because of patents. Now, this this impacts the open source drivers, but it doesn't impact the close drivers like the NVIDIA drivers, because you have to install those manually anyway, so that's an additional step that you wouldn't be coming by default with those. Now, the AMD users and Intel users will have this kind of problem because they, by default, don't have to typically install drivers I- anymore, but in this case, they're going to go back to doing that. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of people have been talking about how this is a decision by Fedora, but it isn't really just Fedora's decision. It's more of the upstream Mesa drivers that made these changes and Fedora adopted these changes. So a lot of people who are blaming Fedora for something that they didn't actually do. But another thing about this is the biggest issue is that a lot of people are saying that these patents aren't important and, well they very much are. And because this could backfire in a big way, if done improperly.
0: Well, let me talk about that for a second. So I have seen the same comments, even on other podcasts and things talking about the fact that Red Hat should just include this and pay for it for users and be done because Red Hat's a big, rich company. And why not provide it for free and license it out there? So I went to look to see much this costs. I mean, if we're talking like $10,000 here. Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's, let's do it mm-hmm. right for the free operating system. And what I could find in some limited research here was some articles of between 2011 and 2015. Obviously these rates have changed. And one of the things to key call out here is in the terms for these rates it says we can change this basically at any time. So today, it may be this price, but tomorrow they could come out and say, well, guess what? We want you know $6 million more or whatever, and the company would have to adapt to that. And that's pretty hard to make a decision on in open source where we really don't know how many users we have at all. So how yeah. much do you actually pay them for this stuff? But under the terms in place for 2011 through 2015, the royalty rates are the same, Regardless of whether a product is part of an OS or not, there's no royalty for the first 100,000 units of a licensed product. Sub licenses pay 20 cents per unit up to 5 million and 10 cents per unit above 5 million. And that current agreement, which isn't current because it's 2011, 2015, included annual limits of 6.5 million per year, which I'm pretty sure Fedora would hit uh, or very close to that 6.5 million dollar cap there. So it kind of got me thinking when people were like, hey, just pay for it so that we don't have to deal with this. And again, this is more of a patent thing. I think people should really be mad at the U.S. patent system, which is completely broken and a complete joke. That's where your anger really needs to be focused on. I think Red Hat protecting its products and protecting Mm -hmm. its business, they would be an idiot not to. Like I would be mad at them if they did just allow this to go through and put the entire open source and and Fedora at risk by not making this change. Do I like it? No, I do not like it at all. I do not like anything that makes it more of a barrier for new users to get in there and do the things they need to do. In fact, I hate it, but I hate the US patent system for it. I don't hate Red Hat for it.
2: Exactly. The,
0: Mm -hmm. The question is, would people be willing to pay a few bucks, maybe ten, maybe twenty dollars to download Fedora each time. Imagine if that was the result. I think people would be even more mad. How dare Fedora go out there and charge me for codecs that this other distro that may have less at risk or somehow they feel like they're going to slide through that, you know, gray area well, where they're not going to get caught is going to be free. I mean, I'm yeah. fine with that. By the way, Fedora wanted to have a version that was twenty dollars and included all the codecs and that i don't think it's even feasible cuz again how do you know how many licenses you're going to buy and stuff Well, let's say that was yeah. an option i would be fine with it but really that's what yeah. we're asking yeah. for cuz this is a very expensive thing 6.5 million dollars i mean yeah sure it's pocket change for michael but the rest of us
2: <laughs> i wish that's a lot of money i wish but it's also important to point out that this 6.5 million relates to specifically just h264 But there's also H.265 and VC1 that are also removed. Now, the thing that's the biggest hit here is the H.265. And that's because the patent license says that if you wanted to do it, you have to pay a a royalty. And this number is not capped. Like the H264 has a cap, but they can still change it based on whatever they say it's worth at this given point or when you know they can still change it anytime they want to, but there is a cap. The H two six five, they can change it anytime they want to, and there's no cap. They can make it 50 million if they wanted to, just because. And once it's already been distributed, they really you can't really do anything about it. It's already there. Mm-hmm. They'd have to they could they'd retroactively be on the hook for all this money. So once they realized that it was there, then they had to remove it because of the legal wording of how patents or software patents work. By the way, there's a website, I think it's in softwarepatents.com or something like that, that is basically to show why software patents are horrible. And this is a very true statement. There has never been a time where software patents made sense. They're just in the way, almost always, for example. Innovation. The, the, yep. Yeah, like this is nothing really new Like we had for... Uh, decades the same thing going on with the mp3 for codex where we had to yeah. install the mp3 support <laughs> because the patents got in the way and that's just a thing we've been dealing with and as soon as the mp3 was like oh, okay now we're fine now but again this comes about so
0: i want to mention the other yeah. things i heard though too michael i heard people saying like well the idea that this is even going to become an issue and then a patent troll could come sue them is, you know, it barely ever happens. I never hear about it. And I'm like, yeah, what world are you all living in? Like, we just had Gnome patent troll issue that hit that I remember us yep. talking about and helping donate for that. I know Red Hat has had several patent troll situations hit them very mm-hmm. recently. This is not like some dream thing of, oh my God, it could happen. This stuff happens all the time. There are entire companies, that's whole livelihood is made on buying patents and they do nothing else. They didn't innovate the product. They didn't create the product. They don't enhance the product. They literally just buy patents to sue people. That's their whole business is just suing yes. people over patents. Absolutely, that's it. That's all they do. Yeah. Most worthless business in the world. Yes, but they exist somehow, and they sleep at night I, with their cash. They probably sleep on. <laughs> <piles of laughs> they cash. sleep
2: on the cash. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's yeah. interesting because like you're talking about how like a lot of people are saying that this is not going. It hasn't been a big deal previously.
0: But it has been a big deal, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: But again, it has been because of all these different uh, patent trolls that have that come about for a variety of different projects. In fact, speaking of that, there's even a foundation of networking of people who are taking from different companies uh, agreeing to share their patents to protect each other. It's called the Open Invention Network. So you join that network as a company, and then your patents go into this thing saying, okay, if you are a part of the network, you also get to Uh, use the patents that we have. And even giant companies like Google and Microsoft are part of this uh, network to uh, essentially protect themselves. And if they're needing to protect themselves, that's kind of the key of how big of a problem this is. So when people say it hasn't been an issue in the past, it hasn't been for this particular example, but it has been in general, like Ryan was saying. But the whole, the, the factor of this specific thing is that, the biggest single word of the entire process of why they did this is the word willful. If they do willful infringement, then it means that they are basically going to lose the lawsuit instantly. If you can prove that someone willfully ignored the license, the, the patents, then you're basically going to win. And the fact that they didn't know and they made the change as soon as they knew means they're not going to be sued for what happened previously. But if they were to keep it not like people are to. suggesting... well. They wouldn't, they wouldn't likely lose even if they were sued because they'd have to prove willful and they've already proven here. Destination that,
0: Linux does not provide you know, legal advice and we were just giving our opinions <laughs> and thoughts.
2: Allegedly, uh, my opinion, et cetera, yes. et cetera. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh. I'm just some guy on the internet. I'm not a lawyer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you remember back in the day, we couldn't play our DVDs and video CDs and super video CDs <laughs> with uh, M player and Cine and yep. other players that were around.
2: Until well, we that was,
1: Yes, yeah, <laughs> that was because of the MPEG two licenses, and mm-hmm. I actually was a member of the Motion Picture Expert Group. Creators of the MPEG codec actually back in the mid '90s to early 2000s as an animation instructor, and I had Course to understand, <laughs> awesome. and I had to understand the costs per workstation for the licenses because I had to pay for several workstations uh, for my students so that we could do DVD authoring and MPEG2 encoding um, and with uh, capture cards. So, and that was an expensive thing. It cost several thousand dollars per workstation <laughs> to get those oh licenses. Gosh. Yeah. That's
0: insane. Well, <laughs> you know what the solution is? I love, by the way, that Jill has that experience. Like we, we talk awesome. about these. It's yes. always Jill has the experience. <laughs> like if we just talk about the Mars rover, Jill will be like, I was a part of and built that. No. <laughs> uh, that's what I love, Jill. Um, but what I think is interesting is the solution here is open source, right? The the op- There's an open source codec out there. Uh-huh. It's a very good open source codec out there and we should be pushing companies to move to that open source codec, which is the AV1. And Ooh, if we move there, absolutely. then all of these problems kind of go away and we don't have to worry about them. And I really don't know how big of an issue this is going to be. What I what I do know is that I believe I saw an article saying it's already out there in RPM Fusion where you can just, if you need those codecs, you can go install them through the third-party software store, RPM Fusion. Well, it's,
2: it's it's being made in that, yes. I don't think, yeah. it, I'm not sure if it's officially available yet right now, as in you can go ahead and install it, but I know that they are working on it for sure.
0: And, and yes, it, it's an additional step, and new users coming into Fedora are not going to know it, or OpenSUSE, for that matter, are not going to know it. And whether uh, Canonical and Ubuntu follow suit, I don't know. Generally, you see Canonical and Ubuntu being a little more willing to ride that gray line, with things, but it's very possible they may, seeing all of this switch as well. It's an additional step. It stinks, but open source is the answer. Push things for AV1. Push these platforms to have AV1, and then we don't have to worry about this nonsense at all. I think a lot of it's been blown out of proportion, and I think the anger, most importantly, is being put towards the wrong people here. This is not something where Fedora's like, we don't want to work on the codec anymore, and we kind of like... Eh, what do you want to do this weekend? Let's get rid of the codec. Cool. This is like a real legit thing that they had to contend exactly. with because of the crappy software patent system and because we have closed source codecs like this, and we already have solutions. We should be moving towards for them. That's my yeah. opinion, anyways. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, absolutely. The fact that the, the Fedora is definitely not super happy about this decision. They're doing it because they don't really have a choice. And that also is true with the Mesa drivers upstream. They're not doing it because they're they're super happy to re- lose support for stuff like they they just need to do this for the legal reasons. And it's super un- unfortunate that these even are a thing. But that's one of the motivations for the AV1 codec to even exist is to avoid these ridiculous patent trolls. And the more and more AV1 is adopted, the more the uh, how more irrelevant. The H264 codecs and H.265 codecs become, which is one of the reasons why the H265 codec did not take off. And like you'll notice that people are still using H264. And mm-hmm. the reason is because H.265's patent became super greedy when they took away that cap. So it was even worse. So there were so many people or companies trying to avoid using it because it was just it would be a nightmare to use it. So AV1 is a solution to all of this nonsense. And that's fantastic. And it's also worth pointing out that a lot of things already have support. So it's Yay. not really that big of an issue, right? Yeah. But Ryan said he doesn't know. but I, So I went did some research and I hear some information. Netflix already has support for AV1. Nice. Uh, YouTube doesn't have support for AV1, but it does have support for VP8 and VP9. And it does those by default. So you'll notice that a lot of people tell you to upload H.264 to YouTube. And YouTube will automatically convert that to VP8 or VP9 so they don't have to deal with that codec stuff. So, And also Twitch is working on moving Mm -hmm. to AV1. And there's also other things they're working on. Yes, (laughs) even uh, Hulu and Peacock have talked about possibly moving. And there's even many more. So ultimately it's annoying but it's not like a, like a catastrophic issue that people are making it out to be. It's not, I saw one comment or one article saying that Fedora has ruined their Linux desktop. and like, It's not that big of an issue. It is annoying for sure, but it's not like you can't get access to it. And I want to bring up one more thing. You mentioned Ubuntu and Canonical. There is a thing they do in their installer that a lot of people don't really like, think about anymore, but there's that checkbox that yeah. says, Do you want to install these extra things, proprietary things, or whatever? That checkbox means that they're technically not distributing the codecs or any of that stuff because you chose to click that box. And it's basically a gray area sort of thing. So whether that's mm. good or not, I don't know. But it allowed, like Linux Mint for a long time was known as the distro that came with codecs because they were, in theory, not big enough to sue because it wouldn't be worth it or whatever. And then all of a sudden, when Canonical provided that checkbox, Linux Mint now just provides that checkbox because they don't have to do the extra process of risking that stuff too. I think it'd be kind of cool if the other distros considered that. But the, the biggest factor we're talking about here as far as the patents go is that who is distributing the thing is the most important thing. The, the last person, like the last mile, or I saw a great analogy was saying, if think of it as a puzzle like the very last puzzle piece that is put in, that's who finish the puzzle. And mm-hmm. whoever finishes the puzzle has yeah, to no. pay the license fee. Yeah. And if Red Hat or Fedora or whatever, or SUSE with OpenSUSE are the ones to do it, then they're the ones who are going to get the target. Whereas if you have a distribution that is a very small distribution not made by a company, they're less likely to be a target. Of course, not a lawyer. So I don't know exactly still there. Could be. You still, still could be. be. Still could be.
0: AV1 is the answer (laughs) at the end of the day. AV1 and and YouTube is doing some changes to test AV1 and putting those implementations in, even for streaming. So as proponents of the open source community, what we should be doing is writing the platforms and telling them we want AV1 implementations of these streaming Mm -hmm. services and of these video codecs. And we had last week, I think it was, encoders that you can use um, for different codecs of AV1 and things. So, Check this stuff out. Research AV1. It really is the answer and what we should be pushing to. And our anger needs to be at the patent system uh, and not at Fedora Red Hat.
1: And not to mention that we have the latest release of the Intel Arc GPUs, which support A V one encoding and decoding. Yeah. And the latest NVIDIA yeah. GPUs and AMD to come soon. And really once once uh, the hardware manufacturers are all in on this, then it's just gonna be easy <laughs> to, yep. to have that A V one everywhere. <laughs> Chant with me.
0: Down with H two six four six five. In Ryan's opinion, down with it.
2: okay. Down with them in general because of the patent system, but more likely down with the patent system for software. Like, yeah, I get the patents in a in a general sense, but software patents. No. The fact that there is a patent for how you open your phone from left to right with your thumb is only allowed for one company to do is so stupid. <laughs> genius, <laughs> Michael.
0: It's genius. From a complete corruption yeah. and holding the world back standpoint, it's genius.
2: Yeah, it, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's good for the, the company to make money, but it's terrible for just reality- I Nico guess.
0: jet says, What do we want? AV1. When do we want it now?
2: Now. Yes, there you go. Perfect. Yes. I love it.
1: Perfect. Perfect. So, if you're depressed about uh, the codecs and whether they're open or closed, you can just uh, go play a really fun game. <laughs> today's...
0: Forget all about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, forget I all it. about it. So, today's <laughs> game pick is Mythic. This is an interesting. Pixel art, massively multiplayer online role playing game. And it was created by two best friends who took their favorite elements of massively multiplayer online role playing games and roguelike genres and combined them together. Nice. So Mythic is an online dungeon crawler inspired by Realm of the Mad God and the classic Zelda games that we all love, where you explore an infinite, procedurally generated labyrinth.
0: So Jill, I watched the developers this awesome. playing this game. Like I <laughs> I love MMORPGs. They're really my first true love in the gaming realm on computers. You know, of course there was Doom and Wolfenstein and all of that stuff, but I mean, the game that I became obsessed with was like with Ultima Online when that mm-hmm. came out and of course EverQuest, which was immensely addicting in oh, yeah. these things. Now I'm an adult and I have no time to play these games, but I always think back on the nostalgia of being just addicted to a game like that again and having fun. And what I like about this is it's really geared towards that single player element, Mm -hmm. but you can run into people and party up with them as well to complete some of these MMO-like elements. So that's what brings people together. So if you have a big boss and things. And the other thing I'll say is, The developers themselves were playing against some of these bosses and dying like back to back to back. (laughs) Yeah, they're hard. (laughs) Current MMOs do this thing where they have bosses have these attack phases that are get very complicated, uh, certain patterns of attacks and spells that they attack with. And this is actually in a pixel game, taking that same element of bosses with these different attack phases and implementing them with these randomly procedurally generated worlds and things creating some really unique elements. Now, I do want to mention, though, there's a lot of negativity. So these are kind of mixed reviews right now on this game. I think there's some more work for them to do. I just think the foundation of this game is very cool. Like, I love the idea of it.
1: Yeah, and I really like the fact that it, you know, is uh, also an, an adventure game for the individual, you've got you got puzzles, you've got enemies, you've got bosses and and treasure to hunt for. But yeah, yeah, it has has a nice uh, co-op element to it as well, and I was impressed by that. And the fact that there are no pay-to-win microtransactions in Mythic, and the developer said they'll w- never will be. So, if you want to play <laughs> something uh uh truly it's not going to ding you <laughs> and ask you for money. <laughs> While you're playing, you know what's interesting?
0: (laughs) We're talking about codecs earlier, and you know that there's these alternatives that are open source and things. When you look at gaming, and people are so upset over microtransactions, Overwatch 2 is a perfect example of a game that Uh, basically has been ruined by microtransactions and trying to copy the Fortnite model very poorly. I might add uh, into their model as somebody who plays Overwatch a lot. It's been a very upsetting, annoying ride to watch them do that but we keep supporting these games that do it. Like we mm-hmm. keep buying into them. Mm-hmm. And so we're not, we need to support the games out there. Like we need to support the codecs or open source that don't do these microtransactions and give them money and stop giving money to these big AAA companies that are doing this microtransaction nonsense. If you want it to go away, because you know why they keep doing it because it freaking works. People are paying yeah. for this nonsense, but I like these developers commitment to not having microtransactions and the yeah. game only costs 4 Fourteen bucks. So
1: Yeah, it's only yeah. fourteen ninety nine on Steam.
2: I also want to point out that it's interesting that they are doing the fourteen ninety nine because a lot of people would say, like, oh, this is an indie game that's a little bit too high. And I would just like to say the fact that they're not doing the microtransactions is very important because, you know, you need to consider the, the how much you would have spent if you got a game that was only $2 by default and then had like $25, $50 in microtransactions, right? Plus
0: there's a server cost. If they're combining everybody together, there's central server. Oh yeah, They're sure. supporting. Yeah. So yeah, you're going to have to get some money somehow in there. I hope they do add... DLC in itself is not a bad thing. Adding additional content and expansion right. packs and charging, that never bothered me. It's this microtransaction to death to do anything. Like in Overwatch scenario, you could play all these characters... And you've been playing all these characters for years. Then you move over to Overwatch 2 and now all of a sudden they're locked behind a paywall uh, that is just infinitely stupid. Oh, wow. So the same characters you were playing, you no longer can. And it's not even a real Overwatch 2. There's nothing new about this game, really. The little refresh graphics, a lot of the maps are the same. It's It's really one of well, the worst implementations I've seen of it. Honestly, mm-hmm.
2: we need to be fair to them and find out. Like, okay, maybe they're not doing much. Okay, but did they add emote dancing? And if that's the case, then it's completely fair fine. For fair <laughs>
0: Yes, that that <laughs> dancing is really really important aspect. Yeah, very important for it gaming. Is. <laughs> you know, when I look at microtransactions, it makes me want to go get my Uzi. It makes me so mad. And that's our software spotlight: is my Uzi. My <laughs> Uzi.
3: M Y U
0: Z I. I love music. <laughs> makes me want to get my Uzi. <laughs> I love writing code, and I love relaxing to music after a long day. That's why our software pick, my Uzi, will help you get joy in all of that. I don't know about you all, but when I find a song I really like and I want to share it with friends, I go to YouTube because I just, you know, any of these streaming services, I don't know if they have the same streaming service as me or not, and all that. And it's kind of like our MTV now, because you get the video too a lot of times with the music, yeah. Which is nice. So I like to get my music a lot of times from YouTube. And my Uzi is a free and open source Linux app for streaming music from YouTube. It has no ads and does not require an account. So if you're one of those people like hey, I'm google my life. I don't want YouTube anything. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have an account. You can just put the artist in and it's going to go find it and play it without all the ads and other things. It has a built-in search function to find your favorite artists. It allows you to create playlists inside of it. My Uzi is awesome and powerful. That's such a good <laughs> sentence. <Yes>. I never <laughs> thought I would say on Destination Linux. Uh, the first artist I added, I just want to mention, is Tupac. I was in a Tupac all mood cool. this week. You know, a little yeah. frustrated work and everything. I was like, Tupac, I need some Tupac. So they I ain't mad it. at some you. Some
1: banging tunes. I
0: ain't mad Man, Michael, well done. <laughs> well played.
1: <laughs> so myozi actually uses YouTube DL and GStreamer for YouTube interaction on the back end. So that's why you don't have to sign into your YouTube account. is So that nice? awesome.
0: I love it. This is Very a really cool. clever app and you can get it as a flat pack.
2: Our tip of the week this week is RHEL actually and i maybe you might be thinking that's a we've heard of rail before like well there is a thing that RHEL is doing that is available as a developer edition that you may not be aware of so I've seen a lot of people talk about, you know, what should I use if I want to get into the enterprise? And then a lot of times on like Reddit and forum threads or something, they'll mention different options, like for example, CentOS Stream or AlmaLinux or other options, but they typically forget to mention Rails specifically. And you might be thinking, well, the reason is because they it costs so much. Well, it doesn't actually, because the developer edition of rail you can get it for no cost completely free up to 16 systems that's right 16 systems it also means you get updates and all that stuff so you get to use the full real rail to do whatever you want as long as you're using the developer edition which is fantastic and a lot of people are not aware of this because they they announced this change during the centos saga so it was kind of buried by that so i think that's why a lot of people weren't aware of it but that's why we wanted to put it for the tip of the week this week.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting is I first want to mention RHEL means Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And I want to my mention bad. that specifically because when I came into Linux, I remember listening to other podcasts that would say RHEL and I had no idea what they were talking about. So if you're <laughs> one of our new users, it's Red Hat Enterprise Linux out there. Oops. And you get up to 16 <laughs> systems on there. I actually run RHEL and it runs my pie Hole, my FTP, my NextCloud instances, everything at home runs on RHEL on the UM UM-700 that I have that was given to us thanks to the Manjaro team and stuff. And it runs fantastically on there. It's very easy to sign up for a license for this and get that enabled. And of course, it runs as you would expect Red Hat to do. So definitely, if this is an industry thing for you, you're wanting to learn more, you want to get a server administration, those type of things, use RHEL Direct. You don't have to use one of these other ones. You can use those. Those are all good options. But just know that you have 16 systems you can use in the developer edition for free.
2: I use RHEL as well because of this same reason. When, like the whole idea of CentOS back in the day was we wanted to use RHEL, but we couldn't have access to it. Now you can, so there you go. Just use RHEL. And sorry, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. You're welcome, right you I said it that time. <laughs> Good job.
0: Well, we mentioned earlier during the segment with WooCash and Pine64 thanking some people for some Super Chats because we do this live every Sunday at 1 p.m. I just want to mention one of the items we talked about is that if you troll Michael with a Super Chat, we will include it in the show. So, Lael, I want to include your Super Chat you just gave now, which states everyone, this is not a Super Chat, it's a troll. Michael is awesome. Aww. Wait, what?
2: Ah, fantastic troll. Yeah. Well done, Lail. I didn't Lael.
0: read that. I didn't read after the comma, and uh, it
2: got me. They got well me. Well done, Lel. Well played. <laughs> fantastic <All right>. troll. <laughs> you trolled <laughs> Ryan by making him think you trolled me. Love yeah. it. Yeah. I saw the troll, awesome. and I stopped, and like I got to read it. It
0: just didn't <laughs> keep reading. Well, a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, we love your faces. And I mean that. Over 190 countries in chat today, all of these different countries from around the world shouting out, which I just love seeing so many people supporting this podcast. We love you for that. We're here every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern live at tuxdigital.com slash live. And the best part is everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat.
2: Also, if you want to join us after the show and outside of the chat, you can join us in a patron-only post-show where you can hang out and talk with us Mm -hmm. after the show every week. And you get this by becoming a patron by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. And you also can get unedited versions of the show if you do miss the live chat or the live stream, because we provide those to our patron as well as many, many more things. So go to tuxdigital.com slash contribute to find out all the great stuff you can get by becoming a patron. Also, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so at the Tux Digital store. You can go to TuxDigital.com slash store, and you can get hats like Ryan is pointing to, which is the first time in a long time he's actually shown something that he really is in the (laughs) store. (laughs) Also, you can get the mug that Jill has or the shirt Jill has with a 33% more Jill and so much more great stuff like T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers. You can get the, the cool stuff we have for the Sinister Wendy collection. There's just such such amazing stuff at tuxdigital.com/store. And by the way, I'm not saying it's amazing because I did most of the artwork. I'm just that's just a happenstance no. well, that is I true. Your <laughs> muse, okay? So let me <laughs> tell you how the artwork works,
0: people. I I draw something the equivalent of a three year old with a crayon, then I hand <laughs> it to Michael and he turns it into art. But that crayon that's portion very is accurate. very
2: important. <laughs> It was. He conveyed yeah. the message he wanted. And I was like, that's a cool idea that I will not use this in any way. Let's make <laughs> it from scratch. That's not true. You used some of my crayon drawings. I used, well, yeah. I, used the, I used it as a reference to then make from scratch. Yes.
0: Yes. Okay. Good.
2: Glad we saw So you. it
0: it was there. It was used a little Very bit. Very talented of with that. my crayons.
1: Right. <laughs> And make sure to check out our incredible shows here on Text Digital. We have the Pseudo Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, Linux Out Loud, Hardware Addicts, Games, Sphere, and Linux Saloon. And everyone head to textdigital.com and subscribe to all these awesome shows. And don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite app. Put a thumbs up
0: <laughs> Jill, That too nice. Do a thumbs up or else. <laughs>
2: Yes, or we command you to do a thumbs up. Five stars out of five.
1: Pseudo, yes. pseudo,
2: pseudo command, exactly.
1: Yes. Keep those penguins marching.
2: In the full Monty of <laughs> Linux and open source, awesome stuff. Uh, I
1: right? that for Ryan. Yes.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Everybody, have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye-bye. Love you all. Most of you.